Welcome to the Superhero of Love podcast. I am Bridget Fonger. I wrote a book called Superhero of Love, Heal Your Broken Heart and Then Go Save the World. That book is going to be out in January 2019, but I didn't want to wait until that time to start talking to superheroes of love. And guess what? Here's the news. You are a superhero of love. And through talking to other superheroes like yourself, tapping into that little superhero inside of you, I'm hoping that you and I and all of us start feeling more and more like superheroes of love, meaning that we love and are loved more than ever before. So welcome. Let's get this party started. Welcome, superheroes. We are here with Jess Phoenix, who's sitting at her, in her home in um, uh, CA25, California 25th District. Um, in, and I am sitting in uh, my home in Los Angeles. And we are joined together today because um, we are recording what is going to be the um, the podcast that's going to air right before the midterm elections. And as we walk into these midterm elections, um, I don't live in the 25th District of California, but I was in an enormous supporter of Jess Phoenix, our guest today, who was running for Congress and, um, as far as I'm concerned, won the primary, but did not, in fact, win the primary <laughs> in June. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, you won. Um, but anyway, welcome, Jess Phoenix. Thanks so much for having me, Bridget. It's really nice to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Oh my God, there's so many things I love about you. But um, Jess is a scientist, and um, but she's also the daughter of two two FBI agents, correct? Yeah, that's right. Both right. mom and dad. <laughs> right. So she's the daughter of two FBI agents. She's a scientist. And she ran for office. Okay. And, and she spoke more eloquently and more powerfully than any, anybody running for office has ever spoken. As far as I'm concerned, you are so whip ass smart. And I just, so tell, tell our listeners about your journey from being a scientist and the daughter of two FBI agents and how that, and how you came to the place in your life where you said, I have to run for office. <laughs> Will do. All right. But just before we, we go too far into it, if you hear any weird noises in the background, my, two of my dogs are having a wrestling match. Behind, <laughs> so um, I took their collars off. You shouldn't hear any tag jingling, but they're definitely, there's dog wrestling going on. So just visualize that. Um, That's like a really great analogy for the political landscape right now. <laughs> I know, right? There's there's constant dog wrestling. Um, <laughs> but all, all dogs aside, um, no, I actually... I didn't even come to science um, in an intentional way, really. I actually was a history major as an undergraduate, and um, I was firmly in the humanities before that, um, thinking I was going to spend my life as an English professor studying the modernist poetry of T.S. Eliot, and here I am, like, working on active volcanoes, so, and then running for Congress. So you can, you can pretty much start from anywhere and end up anywhere if you have the right opportunities that open up to you and you're willing to put yourself out there uh, and say yes to things. And so, you know, I kind of, each time something changed course in my life was a combination of things. It was right place, right time, but also um, me saying, yeah, you know what, that's not inside my comfort zone, but I think I should try it. And, uh, and then that sort of kind of the same thing that got Congress uh, on my radar was just realizing that if not me, um, to represent science and the environment and using evidence to make policy, uh, then who 
could I depend on to do that? And when you look at today's crop of politicians, the answer is not really anybody, uh, you know, with a few exceptions, but people are, I mean, we've turned politics into sort of a, like a gamesmanship contest, like who can do better at politicking than other people. And Mm -hmm. what that's come down to is fundraising and um, saying the right thing, uh, but not really doing much. And I think that we're tired of that as a society. And so who better to give substance and, and objectivity to politics than scientists? And I thought, well, I can't just tell other people to go do it if I'm not willing to try it myself. <laughs> so um, that combined with a supportive husband and um, a really great community of people who loved the idea of making policy using evidence. And, uh, and yeah, I ran. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about... Um being a volcanologist and and you've just been on these extraordinary trips. So I I just want to give everybody this preface of, because you're dealing with climate change in a really, um, on a daily basis. So, so tell us about that. Well, uh, you know, I, I see climate as something that you can't ignore it, no matter what your job is or what your station in life is. Um, you know, even if you're the kind of person who hates nature and doesn't ever go outside unless you have to, um, I, I know people like that. Um, and, you know, even then, this matters to everyone because it's the very air we breathe. Uh, you know, and it's it's the water we drink and it's the soil where we grow our food and and where we build our houses and schools. So, um, to me, it's just so fundamental. But then the big challenge is like you know I. I've worked on six continents now and uh, studied climate um, in Peru, in Wyoming, in Hawaii. Um, I've you know studied active volcanoes all over the place. And one big area where science has consistently missed the mark is in explaining the value of what we as scientists do to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just been, it's so interesting to see the things that I've seen and to experience the world in the way where you're up there, it's a hazardous situation, um, you may be somewhere that is extremely remote, and you may see something that very few people ever get to witness, but you have to be able to translate that into something meaningful to people who may never get a chance to see it. So I think that that's been, you know, it's, it's a challenge, uh, but it's a really important one because people may hear about wildfires in California. They may hear about um, flooding in Florida with rising sea level um, or with a hurricane like we just had. Um, you know, they may hear about these things, but it may not be their backyard. So mm-hmm. it's it's like, how do we make that connection? And that's something that's been really um, weighing heavily on me and a lot of people in the scientific community. And I think that just getting people hooked in with the story of what you do, like, okay, I'm standing on the edge of an active volcano and, you know, it can hear it banging and it sounds like metal hitting metal and you can smell a slight rotten egg trace um, when you're actually not just purely breathing through your gas mask. Uh, people kind of go, oh, wow, because you take them to another place. And I think mm-hmm. that ability to transport people <laughs> and, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> I knew they were going to do that. Um, that was, was an excellent point, mommy. Yes. Well, uh, it's funny because the one is um, really young and he's a pretty recent rescue. So he's just like this little goofy puppy and he constantly provokes the older ones into playing. (laughs) So that's what's going on. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yes. Um, like, again, kind of like our current landscape. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except he is a he is a 100% sweet puppy. And uh, I don't think we can say that about anybody these days. <laughs> you know, um, speaking about storytelling, um, I, I loved uh, watching your travels. Um, and everybody should go follow you on all your social media. So follow Jess Phoenix, like on Instagram, that you really do tell the story in such a beautiful way. It's and um, the way you t and and there's no mistake that that there's no mistake why CNN and other news outlets have chosen you as um, a go-to person that they come to for climate change. So I just wanted to say, you will probably, to dear listener, you will probably see Jess um, if you watch news and you're especially CNN. So thank you for doing what you do because you do explain it in a way that I, a non-scientist, can understand at least. Well, good, because that's a, that is a, a really important thing. Again, it's like if you go to the doctor and they were to tell you, you know, like your cell division rate is X whatever to the billionth something, and then you have to get, you know, this many nanomoles of this type of radiation, you'd be like, I have no idea what you're saying. Like, can you fix me? So you need to be able to, to do that. And that comes, you know, that's all scientists have to be able to work towards getting that skill. And I, whenever I see students, um, I, I always tell them that, you know, if you can't explain what you're researching in 30 seconds to a normal person in relatively plain English, uh, then it doesn't matter what you're working on. You could have discovered the greatest thing on the planet, but mm. you can't communicate the value of it to a regular person. How are you going to get a congressperson or a president to care about what you're doing? Uh, not to mention people on the ground. Mm -hmm. So how are you? So my God. So what do you think? How do we do this? I mean, it, it really does seem like when you were out there boots on the ground, when you were running and uh, talking to other politicians, because I know that you were talking to a lot of other people that were already on the Hill, et cetera. Um, do you think there's hope? Can we, can we get through to the people that have uh, the ha their hands over their ears about climate change? We can. And actually, the thing that encouraged me the most wasn't so much talking to the political insiders, um, because they have a very, very rigid way of looking at how things should be done or quote unquote must be done. Uh, it's really the people that you meet in everyday life who give me the hope. And uh, a really good example of this is when my husband Carlos and I were canvassing in uh, Palmdale, which is a, um, well, it's largely aerospace and military town uh, where I live. It's in the Mojave Desert, the very western edge of the Mojave, and uh, it's the fringes of L.A. County. And most people in that community are, com are commuters. They have to drive into L.A. for work. And so... It's kind of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of stagnation in the town where people are looking for better opportunities and where you know, there's a real working class desire to succeed, but there aren't always the local jobs to make that happen. So Palmdale is a place that's very heavily Latino and um, has a lot of African-American folks as well. And I will say that you know when we're canvassing, and I speak Spanish and so does my husband, and so we're canvassing a lot of neighborhoods um, in Spanish and we're speaking to people whose only language or primary language of communication is Spanish. And so you know, there's a stereotype that people, you know, Spanish speaking voters are not gonna vote about the environment. They don't care about the environment. But I will tell you, I was asking people um, out of these five issues, and I think it was healthcare, education, immigration, um, environment, or economy, uh, which of those things would you rank as your most important priority? And I had so many people 
tell me um, that environment was their priority. And the first time it happened, I was like, whoa, well, that's really neat. Um, and I didn't think it was going to be a trend, but it really was. And people would tell me stories like we we walked up to a house where they were having a birthday party for a little six year old girl. And, <laughs> her, you know, I waved at them and, you know, her father came over and talked to us for a few minutes and he was explaining to me how, you know, he thinks that, you know, the desert is beautiful and we have to protect it. And he's really afraid for the air quality because his daughter has asthma and they get a lot of really bad pollution days up in Palmdale. So, I mean, people are aware of this and it doesn't require a PhD to understand that the environment affects every single person. And I mean, so the hope that I get is that people who are listening, particularly young people, to what scientists are saying and, you know, the reports we're getting on climate change and on the threats and the hazards, I hope that the young people who will be the ones making decisions and driving the economy and the changes that we could do, I hope that they're the ones who are paying attention and saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, we don't want to inherit an earth that is completely trashed. <laughs> we want an earth that we can live in. So I'm encouraged by them. I am not so much encouraged by, um, you know, establishment government uh, mechanisms for dealing with things because they go often too often for quick wins and uh, they don't play the long game often enough. Uh, mm, and and they don't, they're afraid to think, um, you know, what vision do we want for our communities and for our country? And that is where we have to be thinking about that. It's not just what's going to happen to my job in the next three weeks. I mean, for some people, yes, that's really important. It's the most important thing. But the people who can afford to think about the long term have to think about it. I mean, it's required uh, because you are basically being your brother's keeper in that sense. And we have to do that for each other. How was the engagement of the young people uh out there when you were out. And I, I am so embarrassed. I have not had a single, I wanted, my intention was definitely to be canvassing um, this fall and getting people out to vote, et cetera. And I haven't been out there once. So tell me what it was like out on the ground with the young people. Do you feel like they're, cause I know they are our hope. So. Oh, they're, they're brilliant. I mean, I met so many young people who were just dipping their toes into activism or had been politically aware, basically, since they came out of the uterus, it seems like uh, the, some of those, those kids, you're like, that's going to be our next congressperson. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I can tell you, I particularly think that way about a couple of the, the uh, younger people who volunteered for my campaign. Um, and the cool thing is that when I didn't progress past the primary, I told them, you know, go on, like continue, keep fine, either for another candidate, um, you know, in our community or for a cause in our community that you care about, whether that's, um, you know, reducing gun violence or protecting the environment or working on immigration issues, just find whatever it is you care about and do something for that. And they, I mean, they didn't need me telling them that you could tell they were already completely on it. And Mm -hmm. I have seen, I would say far more young people who are engaged um, or want to be engaged, but just don't feel like they're fully informed about the issues and they just need a little bit of help in terms of where to find information. Uh, Then I see young people who are apathetic or really just don't care. And you do have to combat some of the myths like, oh, my vote doesn't matter because in my case, I live in California, my vote doesn't matter, you know, And, and you're like, well, actually it does, particularly at the local level. Um, you know, that's where you get either, like, I mean, you're not going to build, if you want a progressive infrastructure, it's not just going to appear. Um, you know, you're not going to get, say, uh. you know, a couple years ago it would have been Bernie for president and then everything's progressive. Like, no, that's not how it works. And even this time in 2020, if we elect a super progressive president, 
the whole rest of the country isn't going to automatically become progressive. You have to, mm-hmm. you know, find what your goal is. And if that's progressivism or, you know, on the other, on the flip side, let's not address the Trump wing of the GOP. But if your if your principles were conservatism, like the more traditional path of it, you would have to say, what are we going to do to get there? And that means you've got to get people at the, at the community level going to those city hall meetings and uh, you know, the town council stuff. And it's not, super exciting and sexy and glitzy and you won't have news cameras in your face 24 seven and you're not going to be, you know, the architect of the policy that saves the country, but you are going to be laying the groundwork to have the world that you want to live in, in five, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, you know, speaking of things that are not sexy that have to do with politics, I, I don't know about your ballot, but my local ballot is so complicated. And I feel like, um, I mean, it's like a college course all on its own, <laughs> trying to figure out what I'm going to vote for. Um, that stay engaged thing. I'm just hoping that I'm just hoping that all my neighbors are going to hunker down. In fact, I'm going to, I think I'm going to join with another neighbor and try to flesh through some things together and, you know, uh, re- obviously reach out to friends on the things that I really, it's so confusing too when you get the 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 ballot measures that are the measures that are on the ballot that are you see that you can't you can't go by the commercials that are it's like everything horrible oh my god well let me tell you that that actually reminds me of something that i just should emphasize and i will never stop emphasizing this until they you know uh until i'm dead and can't talk anymore um but no uh the biggest thing that we need to do is to because you said advertisements and that that's what triggered it for me um the most important thing that we can do is to reform um campaign finance law and right now big money and dark money have completely polluted the system. And that's why, I mean, I was reading about a race in Illinois, the Illinois governor's race, where the Democrat in the race is um, independently wealthy. And so is the Republican incumbent. And the Democrat has, I think he scored something insane, like 80 plus million dollars of his own money into the race, or maybe it was 180 million. I can't remember the figure, but it's staggeringly high. And oh my God he has more he can throw at it too. And so I guess people there are like, yes, okay, we're sick of your commercial stop because he's just bought up all the airtime. And I mean, it's when it becomes an advertising contest, that is, that's a perversion of the democratic process. And we do see that for ballot measures and propositions and it's, it's just wrong. So what people really need to be doing is in introducing at the local and state levels ballot initiatives that reform the campaign finance system. Because if you get a couple of states or like say even a couple of really big municipalities within a state to publicly fund elections uh, or to restrict the amount of, um, you know, ad space that people can get or, you know, basically just saying, you know, the elections are publicly funded and you have to meet a certain threshold um, to demonstrate you're viable. But from then on, you know, you get X amount of funding and that's it. <laughs> and you get X amount of time to advertise like the last, I don't know, I think they do it in Europe um, where like the last week or two weeks before the election, there's no advertising anymore. Uh, um, that's things like that. so great. Yeah. I mean, we can explore that. I think we should explore that because nobody likes this crap and it's just there since the citizens united decision uh was handed down by the supreme court it's basically created this uh free-for-all where there's an industry that has grown up where you have these um, lobbyists and consultants whose whole gig depends on um a bunch of advertising and a bunch of mailings etc etc and so it's i mean it's a whole industry and yes i mean i had some great consultants i worked with um but bottom line there shouldn't be an industry around politics politics should not be an industry i believe that very strongly 
Mm-hmm. Um, there, so there is, um, is it Overturn Citizens United? I mean, there, are, there, are there organizations that are writing these kind of, because that is brilliant, bringing it to the municipal level is brilliant. I'm just wondering if there are organizations out there that are working on that, bringing it to um, large cities as a start. Step yeah. Up. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I saw some um, feedback that, I mean, there is a group called ncitizensunited.org. So sorry. Yeah, Thank you. yeah, no, no, you were, you were close. There's a few. Um, yes. but these guys, um, they're a political action committee. So it's funny because if you <gasps> change the system, you have to be part of the system, uh, which is one of the reasons I ran. Because uh, I'm like, well, if you're just on the outside screaming, everyone's like, look at that crazy person. But if you're in the system uh, and you're working within the channels of the system, then you can say, well, this is how we need to change it. So I, you know, uh, political action committees are different than super PACs. Uh, super PACs have um, the ability to cover up dark money a lot easier than a political action committee does. So it's a little different, but mm-hmm. it's funny. That means basically if you donate to them, the money will go towards working to um, basically reform the campaign finance system. So that's, right. um, I have done that. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. why they're in my, I'm, I mm-hmm. can't believe I raped their name. <laughs> and I mean, apparently, um, it's, uh, one of the last, um, data points I saw, they've done some surveys of people, both conservatives and liberals, and they, um, there was overwhelming support for a constitutional amendment that would get rid of, um, Citizens United. So, uh, that was that was earlier this year. I don't remember the exact date, but the fact is the public has a very negative perception of Citizens United, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's um, let's go into the 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 realm of guns. So you were the daughter of two FBI agents. You had a relationship with guns at that point, or knowledge about guns at that point. And then when you were a teenager, you were just um, you were in high school, just down the street from from Columbine. So your relationship with guns may have shifted at that point, and then you ran for office. So I just want to talk about the history of. And t- tell us tell us your thoughts about gun control and uh, gun reform. Well, I just want to get it out there and say that um, you know one thing that I hear a lot is is people making the claim um, you know on the the uh, I should say that the radically conservative side that you know all liberals want to do is take away all the guns and mm-hmm. it's you know first it was Obama was coming to take the guns and now I'm like Obama's gone so who's coming to take the guns <laughs> um, but anyway it's the narrative has really been twisted and um, I think the bottom line and something that I've always been able to keep sight of when I talk about gun reform and and uh, the need for responsible gun control and responsible gun ownership uh, is that this is costing people lives and people do not uh, connect with that until it hits them personally. It's, it just seems like we are so numb these days to the mass quantities of blood that are being shed um, because of guns. And I mean, obviously there's all sorts of ways that violence happens um, and guns aren't the only way, but guns are so accessible in our country in a very unique way. Uh, Out of any country in the world, we have such ready access to firearms and not just, you know, you're like a six shot revolver. We're talking, you know, AR-15s, which are, you know, basically originally designed to kill a lot of things very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it, it's not about parsing words. It's not about, um, you know, kind of getting into the weeds there. What it's really about is, you know, I was 17 and we had um, 13 people die at Columbine, um, you know, who were, minding their business, uh, going to school. And then what I always try to tell people is that 
the best way I can put it as to why us students who were, you know, at that age didn't speak out like the students um, from say Parkland um, is that we, we thought that the grownups were going to make it better um, because we were sort of the first mm-hmm. big school shooting, you know, it was, right. we didn't think of ourselves as the first, we thought of ourselves as like the only, uh, the we last. were in, Right. Yeah. We were an aberration. We were a freak. Uh, It it wasn't something that we thought we would have to worry about going forward like this. And, and it's interesting because we've seen the school shootings start to, it seems like, and and I mean, I'm sure that the data would, you know, either prove me wrong or prove me right here. And I don't actually know, but it just seems like we hear so much more about different school shootings now. And I'm sure it's of course, because of the, the contention over guns, but you know, I, I was raised to think that they were, um, something that law enforcement used, quote unquote, responsibly. Now we see some difference of that with uh, what's going on with people of color being shot uh, by police mm-hmm. at uh, different rates than people who are uh, white are being shot. So, I mean, obviously the law enforcement notion of all cops are good and they know how to handle their guns well is not necessarily true, but my parents were very responsible with their gun ownership and possession and uh you know, they didn't, they just told us this isn't something for kids. Like this is not something you need to touch and we're going to keep it away from you. And, you know, they, they kept their guns out of easy reach for me and my brother, my brother's five years younger. So for me, it was just like, yep, this is, this is a very specifically um, designed tool, you know, that, that should be used by people who know how to use it. And that was it. And, you know, with Columbine, I didn't think, and I think this is, I only speak for myself here, but I don't think it's a big leap for anyone to understand this. But when it happened, we weren't like, oh, well, obviously there's a gun problem Um, because you don't hear about the majority of violent gun incidents, which are suicides or domestic violence issues. You don't hear about those on a daily basis. It's not like, you know, they're publicized to the same degree. If it was famous people killing themselves all the time by gun, then we'd hear about it. But because it's typically just normal folks who, you know, they're, they're going through a bad period or they're naturally violent or, you know, whatever have you, you know, there's a mental illness component at times, but people hurt themselves and they hurt others and it never makes a headline. And so I think with us, with, with, you know, in the aftermath of Columbine, it was like, oh my God, well, the SWAT team didn't go in soon enough. And, oh, you know, Eric and Dylan listened to Marilyn Manson and, you know, and they played Doom. And there were all these reasons um, that people were putting out there as to why they might have done it. Um, But what people weren't addressing is how did they have access? And they did. I mean, law enforcement did end up um, prosecuting the person who supplied them with guns uh, from a gun show. And there was a loophole involved there, of course. But it wasn't like we didn't think of it as this epidemic that we now understand it is. And I think that's, you know, you heard Virginia tech a few years later, and then there were a couple other smaller incidents like Northern Illinois university was one that comes to mind. And, and um, you know, it was each time it was pretty shocking, but also I think people went, Oh, well, we've seen this before. And then with Sandy hook, no one had ever seen that before. That, That was next level. And I was, at the time that Sandy Hook happened, I was actually uh, still living abroad. I was in Australia for a couple of years. Uh, and my husband and I were just about to move back to the US and that happened. And I like could not believe it was happening. And all my Australian colleagues would say to me, like, what is wrong with you Americans and your guns? And I'm like, look, I have no idea. <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. I have no clue, but this they're going to fix it. The grownups are going to take care of it. And the funny thing is at that point, I was very much a grown up, uh, you know, but I still... <laughs> 
I think it's that you, part of you gets frozen when something really traumatic happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and people talk about that. Like if you're like five and something awful happens, you're going to retain that. I think the same thing holds true with these school shootings. I mean, part of you is always going to be like broken and maybe not completely like destroyed, but you're going to have, you're going to bear a mark from that experience. Mm-hmm. And I so think when the trigger, so when mm-hmm. you heard about Sandy Hook, it triggered the Columbine memory and where you went was to like frozen, like, yeah. I don't know what to do now. Yeah, it was, a bit, it, it was like, this can't be real. It was almost like mm-hmm. my brain wanted to just reject the reality because, you know, it's the, the horror of the actual school shootings is it's really acute. You're like, yep, this is awful. It's a terrible image. There's, you know, you, you can see bullet holes in lockers or you can see bloodstains on carpeting. You can see, you know, people being taken out on stretchers. I mean, those things don't leave you, but, but they're really, they have a discrete end. Like when you see a person who you knew on a sidewalk dead, like they're dead, that's it. But what you don't see and what I think a lot of reporting now is starting to come up and and cover, but it's what happens to the entire community afterwards. Um, You know, it's, it has such a tentacled far reaching effect when you have a mass violence incident and particularly these mass shootings and particularly when it involves kids that, you know, you, the first shock is really, it's like the tip of the iceberg. You don't even know what's coming next because you can't see it. And, but the community, it feels those ripples that, that just go on for, for, you know, a year, two years, a decade or more. And, it's never the same. And I keep telling people, especially when they bring it up, you know, like, what would you say to people who um, aren't sure about gun reform or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I just say, look, you know, it's, it's someone else's problem until it happens to you. And it's not a matter mm-hmm. of if it's when at these mm-hmm. days, it really is when, I mean, it'll happen at a music festival. It'll happen at a nightclub. <laughs> it'll happen at a synagogue. I mean, it's just, it's out of control. And so I told people, look, you know, I, uh, yes, I'm somebody who has that lived experience from a pretty young age, but I'm also somebody who's a scientist. I like evidence. I like facts. I like to be pragmatic. So clearly, you know, we have the second amendment. We are not going to, you know, sub, some, no one's going to snap their fingers and pull a Thanos and like half the guns are going to disappear or even all of them. That won't happen. Uh, you know, this isn't an Avengers movie. So <laughs> Like, what can we do? And so I think that's like, I had very specific things that I would want to do, which they, all politicians should really be able to get behind these because it doesn't impose on anybody's rights. Because like, say, universal background checks. If, like, why would you be against that or unless you are a criminal attempting to get a gun? <laughs> like, if you are a law-abiding gun owner, that should be a no-brainer. Like, yes, we'll do that. Um, if, you know, what's wrong with a 14-day waiting period? I mean, there, if you can make an argument to me, like say, you know, you've just taken out a protective order because you have someone who's threatening you with violence, maybe you need a weapon sooner. Okay. But for most people, like the vast majority of cases, you don't need a gun within 14 days. Like it's just not something that comes up. Um, And then, you know, also the access to like things like AR-15s. So I I was very specific because you the big thing that particularly if you're talking about gun reform and gun control, that the people who are, they want to have inflammatory discussions and they're in favor of all guns all the time. They Mm -hmm. will say, um, you don't even know what an assault weapon is. And I'm like, Oh yeah, well here, I don't want to ban quote unquote assault weapons because that term is contentious. I want to ban centerfire semi-automatic rifles. 
mm. and, and restrict magazine capacities for those rifles to six and to 10 for handguns. And they kind of look at you like, whoa, you know the term centerfire semi-automatic? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, it's different than bolt action or lever action. And then they're kind of like, oh, well, okay. And then, of course, then they try to find another loophole. But the you're trying to say, look, there is a very clear line here about what we're saying is appropriate for private citizens to own and what mm. isn't. And you can't take a document that was written, you know, a couple hundred years ago uh, and then interpret it in a way that was nowhere near what was on anybody's mind at the time, which right. is, you know, some guy with like 50 semi-automatic and illegally modified weapons in his garage. You know, they, that's not right. what they were thinking when they said, well, organized militia. Right. <laughs> they didn't even have the term semi-automatic. No, because it wasn't a thing. They were like, here, your musket, go enjoy shooting people. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't happen. Um but I think it's, you know, I think it's just, it's just t- right now tapping into this larger trend, which I've seen, and I'm, you probably have seen it too, where violence almost seems surreal, like it doesn't seem real anymore. Um, and I wonder if it's because of all the movies and all the, you know, the media we consume that is so violent, um, or if we're just losing sight of our empathy, but something is, is it's just a little well, bit think- wrong. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, maybe, maybe some people are losing their empathy, but I, I know so many people that are just, I have, I have a lot of people in my orbit that are battling depression, you know, that just feel, have not recovered from the last election too. And just Mm -hmm. feel like this contentiousness that, that is in the world right now is, it's like insurmountable. I I just wrote an article for Thrive Global, which is, um, it's called, right versus love like the the, you know the old phrase you can either be right or you can be happy yeah and and these so i i'm saying you know that's we need something more powerful than that we need to choose between being right or being love because right now the we are all so righteous even me like i am righteous too and i get so right you know, it's like, no, I'm right. And you're wrong. And you're not only wrong, you're really wrong. So wrong that I don't want to even be in the same room with you. And like, we're moving into this, into the midterm elections, we're moving into the holidays. And I'm actually, I'm starting this, this social media thing on November 1st in a couple of days, which is to, uh, to get everybody to join in and share their tips of how they're dealing with this righteous world that we're living in. Like, how do you, how, what, how are you going to go and sit at the Thanksgiving table with your uncle that you completely disagree with? How are you dealing with your neighbor who feels the opposite to you? So um, I would love to hear any thoughts on how you're dealing with that because you dealt with it out there you know, with the people, you know, as po- po- the politicians are basically paid to be righteous, right? <laughs> like, like, yeah, so. a lot of time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's another thing that we should point out too, is if you run for office, um, you don't get to draw a salary because you're doing it full time. So that was the funny thing is people, when I would tell them like, I actually am doing this for free. I'm not right. working and I'm campaigning yeah. for over a year. And they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, yeah, that's a problem with our system because only people who have say a double income household or something and they can, you know, afford to have one person not work is the only people who can run for office. Cause I mean, that's why you don't see single parents try running that office. Just not. I didn't mean to say you're right. No, 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 I know. But I just appropriately said though. No, 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 you were fine. I just wanted to point that out. Cause I I try to take that opportunity too, to be like, Hey, just 
So, you know, our system's messed up because only people who can afford to run are running. Uh, yep. That's a problem. Yep. So um, that and, is well, And what I was alluding to also is like, the, is the lobbyist and the people that mm-hmm. are the dark money that's, that's supporting the people that are supporting Oh yeah. These companies visions yep. anyway. So, but, but I was going to say how I deal with it. I mean, it's interesting because my parents are Republican and uh, my mom actually was, um, she was under, she served under Tom Ridge in Homeland Security, right? When Homeland Security was first created. So she, she's an expert on terrorism and foreign counterintelligence. And she, you know, after her time with the FBI, she served as the head of public safety for the state of Colorado. Uh, and then George W. Bush uh, called and said, will you come work for me in Homeland Security? So my mom did that. Yeah. So she was, she was in DC post 9-11 and she had a, she was in charge of um, something that they since renamed it, but it was called the Office of State and Local Government Coordination and Preparedness, which is like really long. And that's why they renamed it because, oh, (laughs) SLGCP or whatever um, is a very bad acronym. So anyway, but her, she had a $4 billion budget to make sure that um, local and state and federal first responders and emergency response was coordinated. And so they had the resources they needed to respond to terror attacks or to, um, you know, whether domestic or foreign or to, you know, basically making sure that first responders would be able to have the equipment and, you know, the, um, the resources like say the fire trucks or whatever it might be uh, that they need to get the job done. So that was what she was doing. Um, And she served not because she was so ideologically Republican, but because, you know, she had this expertise that's so, so relevant. So my mom's a bit more moderate um, than my dad, especially my mom's a bit more moderate and on the social issues side. My dad is Catholic, very, very Catholic. uh, And uh, very conservative. And, you know, it was, it's really hard to tell your conservative parents like, Hey, I'm going to run for Congress as a Democrat <laughs> and then try to have anything be said after that, that isn't awful. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, with them, obviously because it's my family too, it makes it harder. And I'm sure uh, your listeners have experienced this as like the closer the person is to you, the harder it is to have difficult conversations sometimes. Yes. Um, but my, you know, at various times through when I was, when I was campaigning, I would have conversations with my dad and he would say something kind of inflammatory and I would kind of counter with, well, actually the facts show blah, blah, blah. Like say about abortion. We talked about abortion, which is always a great conversation to have with your conservative <laughs> father. Um, don't try that one on Thanksgiving. I'm just saying. Um, but you know, we're, we're talking about it. And I'm like, well, dad, do you actually want there to be fewer abortions? And he's like, well, of course. And I said, well, then, you know, multiple studies have proven that the surest way to lead to fewer abortions is to provide comprehensive science-based sex education to students and then to make sure that reproductive health care is accessible and affordable for everybody. And my dad's like, whoa, whoa. And he kind of argued and I said, well, no, actually it shows this, it shows that, it shows, you know, and I would give him the facts and then he would kind of go, oh, well, uh, well, okay. You know, in that case, I can see it being, being appropriate, but not, uh, not any other case. You know, it was, it was, so I would make a little bit of progress at a time or, and you know, and that's the thing is you have to know what someone's objective is. Like I knew fundamentally my dad is anti-abortion because he thinks the best way of having no abortions is to ban them. And I'm like, actually, if you really want to reduce the number, you're never going to get to zero, but let's be practical. If you really want to reduce the number, here's what you can do. And I think that goes for just about anything. Like if you're talking with your parents and they're like, you know, or your family, your crazy uncle, whoever it might be. And you're like, Hey, you know, I really think that, you know, religious freedom is important. And they're like, yes, but forget Muslims. And you're like, oh God, no, that's not what I meant at all. And then you have to, (laughs) you have to kind of understand what they mean when they say religious freedom. And you say, well, what's your vision of religious freedom? You know, like that's, and then 
That's good. If, if you What's don't, your vision of yeah, the, yeah, like the you ideal don't, world in yeah, there. Yeah. What is it? What does a good economy look like to you? You know, and then you can say, oh, well, that's great for you. But then so and so, you know, this happens to the farmers, or this happens to you know the people in in the manufacturing industry. So it's it's like you have to know where someone's coming from to really understand what's motivating them. And, and unless you're willing to listen, you're never going to understand that at all. And then you can't propose solutions that might work for people. I mean, that was what politics was all about. It was about saying, I want A and you want Z and we're not, neither of us is going to get A or Z. So let's meet somewhere in the middle. How about M or N or O? <laughs> like, how do we get there? Okay. So, yeah. you know, it's just a, it's a matter of being able to listen and appreciate that, Hey, we're all human and we're all stuck on this rock hurtling around the sun together. So we better get along at least a little in a little bit more of a nice fashion than we have been. I love, um, I just want to distill that down and represent us to it that, sure that um really because you and that is you know this is all superhero of love right it's all about your heart so you have to kind of open your heart to want to hear the other person's vision like and people love to talk about the vision that they have i I just think that that is the most beautiful thing that you did with your father like tell me your ideal world yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that's so beautiful and it opened your heart. It opened his heart. Like, and be, the other thing is like being curious and really being curious, like what's underneath it. Okay. What's underneath that? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? You know, like there's sometimes layers of things to set aside and sometimes like the, uh, you know, this, this, the righteousness that the, um, that the shooter had at the synagogue the other day, um, you know, this, where did that righteousness come about, you know, yeah. Jewish people being evil or whatever his, I can't even remember. I kind of, I'm blocking out what he, yes. I want to think about it. You know, it's just, no, like, I, I understand. It, but uh, the level of righteous, you know, this, yeah. like, ha, like something did some, you just think, did something happen when you were a child? Did something, what's you wonder, you want to find a cause. Like we all want to find a reason for things that are inexplicable. And I mean, that's a completely relatable thing. You're like, why are you so awful? (laughs) And and I think, you know, with all the, that might not be good dinner conversation. You can't say that, but with all of the, um, with all of the really extreme things that make the news, we have to remember most people are not like that. And, And that's the important thing to hold on to is, most people are pretty reasonable and you may not agree, but you can find points of commonality. And, and I think that's why uh, things like the environment, which never were partisan before, the fact that they've become politicized is just, it's a shame because this is something everybody should agree on. And if you actually talk to people one-on-one, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm for that. Yeah. I want to protect the national parks and I want to make sure our waterways are clean and I want to protect the animals. And, you know, very rarely do you have somebody if you give them that option, they'll say no. It's just that, you know, when you've got fossil fuel industry or, you know, as an example, paying um, for one narrative, then it's really hard to combat that. So you just have to go back to the, the, the fundamentals, I think. I think, and I, you, you just revealed another trick for us, which is um, taking, like, instead of looking at the big picture, like, I'm, I don't believe in climate change, um, going down into the little details. So, okay, but do you get that the polar, we're losing the ice 
Mm -hmm. you know, and, and and the entire ecosystems are going away, you know, to like get to the, get to the details, stay, stay out of the big, broad picture. Cause the big, broad picture is where uh, both sides get inflamed. Right. Because. They'll just say, no, that's not real. And you're like, okay, you just dismissed everything in that umbrella. And you're like, you're like, no, you can't do that. But if you do tell people, Hey, did you notice that, you know, we don't have cicadas anymore. Like say, if you, if that was where your part of the country was and there were no more cicadas, if you say that people will go like, Oh yeah, I've noticed we don't have those anymore. Or Mm -hmm. when someone says, yeah, it seems like the fire season lasted a lot longer last year. You go, yeah, actually it did. You know why? Climate change. Uh, But no, but like, or if there's a reason that you can point to do it, but otherwise just go, yeah, you know, I think that's why it's really important that we keep funding research into this because if it's going to be like this, we need to know how to handle it better than just throwing money at the problem. Uh, <laughs> right. That's, so, a great, that's a great tip. I love that. So, so is your, is your Thanksgiving table um, uncomfortable around these times, especially since it, it's so annoying that the midterm elections are right before the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I'm pretty lucky this year. Um, I did not get to do anything fun the whole time I was running for Congress. So yes. um, my husband, and I are finally taking like a real vacation, um, not one where I go to another part of the world and do volcano stuff and he stays at home. Uh, we're okay. actually going together. And uh, but of course, we're going to a volcano because I wanted to go see Santorini. So we're going to he's got work in Europe. So he's going to be in Europe for two weeks for his job. And then I'm flying over to meet him in Athens and we're going to go see Santorini. So we will actually be out of the country for Thanksgiving. So I don't have to worry about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, Christmas is another matter. I am not sure yet what we will do. Uh, but yeah, no, it does. We have moments. I can say, um, like last year, my parents came out here and so did my younger brother. Uh, and we hosted Christmas at our place and that was in the thick of the campaign. And, uh, it was, it was fun. We, we had a few moments where, you know, someone would say something and then the room would get tense and then someone would try to make it dissipate by making a joke about something unrelated. And, but we were good. My mom would give my dad these, like these, you know, shoot daggers with her eyes at him and kind of be like, you could tell she was thinking, shut up, John, just shut up. And, and he listened. I mean, I mean, she didn't say I have to say a word, but he listened. Um, so he kept it, he toned it down a bit for the holidays last year, which was nice. That's huge. Right. Yeah. So that's a tip. That yeah, we he tries. Can... I mean, he tries. Okay. So and you just thing. mentioned three more tips. Um, yep, toning, okay. your, toning yourself down. Just a little. <laughs> joking, joking about unrelated things mm-hmm. and leaving the country. Yeah. <laughs> there is that. Um, I mean, maybe not everyone can leave the country, but for those who can, I highly recommend a vacation, probably to a volcano if you're me. <laughs> okay. And okay. Thank you for all those tips. Cause that was a bunch of wonderful, wonderful tips. And I particularly, I really, really, really love the getting curious about the other person's point of view and also um, staying out, staying away from the big umbrella and, and, and going to what's underneath the, all the little pieces that are under the umbrella. I love that. All the little raindrops under the umbrella. Um, but speaking of volcanoes, um, tell us about your TV show. Oh, well, there's nothing that's finalized yet, but I'm, I did shoot more for, um, that should be coming out two things actually that are coming up soon. Um, one is going to be on, um, there is a, 
like there's a Facebook TV thing now, uh, which I think is pretty I cool. I heard but, about this. Yeah. And you're the first person I know with a Facebook TV show. So tell well, us. It's not my show. It's actually, um, it's, it's a show that's from the company now this, that does a lot of, um, shareable content that we see online. They have a spinoff show that was purchased by Facebook for Facebook's platform called apocalypse. Now this, and, uh, it's cool. Cause the host right. of it is a guy named Sean and he goes around and, um, it, he basically talks with experts in different fields to figure out, could the world actually end this way? And so he, um, they contacted me and wanted to know if I would tell them about Yellowstone. And I said, yeah, why don't we just go to Yellowstone? And they said, okay. So, uh, I met them in Yellowstone and, uh, I told them about why we should not be worried about Yellowstone ending our world. Uh, it's not going to happen, uh, not in our lifetimes and not likely for, for many, many, many more years. Uh, and even then it won't end the world. It'll just mess up the climate for a while. So, um, I did my best to burst that bubble, uh, as I always do. And then, um, I've got, I've done shot more shows for, Science Channel. Um, they, I'm, I, I was on season four of their show, um, What on Earth? And I was, I had like a show where I was the main person. And then I had a show where I was the secondary person. And then I appear as a talking head in a bunch of their episodes. And I'm doing the same for season five. Um, and I can tell everybody that you'll really want to see What on Earth season five, because I go to a place that has what looks like blue lava flowing out of a volcano. So, and I can't do a spoiler. I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you it looks like blue lava. And that sounds, I mean, it is as cool as it sounds. Like the visuals are going to be insane on that one. So yeah, and that was, it was amazing. So um, people should, should watch that. It should be airing in the next couple of months, but you know, what on earth is like the biggest, most popular show on science channel. So I'm sure people can find it. Yeah. Uh, and then I am working, um, with a couple of different folks trying to get a show where it would be like me hosting. Um, but we have run into some issues. We've heard from different network executives that like the viewers will not believe that a woman could be a scientist, particularly not a quote unquote young woman. And I'm like, I'm 36. I'm almost 37. At what point am I not young anymore? <laughs> oh, I mean, but, you, but frankly, I mean, so everybody will see your picture when they click on the, on the podcast, but you look really young. You could pass for in your twenties for sure. <laughs> well, so, that's the funny thing but, is people do think people thought when I was running that I was the youngest person in the race on the democratic side. And I'm like, no, I'm the oldest. And they just wouldn't believe it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it was funny. Um, but, but Hey, that is know. insane. So network executives saying yeah. you won't be believed because you're a young woman. Yep. And they, they said that, you know, if I was basically, if I was a crusty old white guy, I'd have no problem, um, you know, hosting a show, but it's just not, the audiences won't believe that I could be a volcanologist. And I'm like, are you serious right now? Like, oh my God. You need to get on a woman owned network. Like what about own? Seriously. Yeah, I know. Right. Hey, Oprah, if you're listening, um, <laughs> somebody needs to pitch it to Oprah. I'm not kidding. Yeah. You need to be on a woman. You need to change this paradigm. You need to change this crusty yeah. old white guy. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is the cool thing is I, I did go on a bit of a Twitter rant about it. I, I say rant, but it was like two tweets. So it's not really much of a rant, but I was like, this is a real experience that's happening. And I actually had people respond to me because of that. And they were like, oh, we should talk about what we could do for a show. And I'm like, cool. So people were like, this is wrong. We should do, do something about it. And yeah. so I think there is, we're, we're starting to see a bit more of a, of a wave for that, but I think it's, so important. And I do this with my nonprofit that I run, Blueprint Earth. It is, we're trying to bring um, traditionally underrepresented students out to do field science research in the desert, in the Mojave. And 
these are students, a lot of them are first generation college students, um, or they, you know, they're taking biology um, as their major, but um, they think that the only thing they can do with that degree is become a nurse. And I'm like, no, we need wildlife biologists. We need, you know, biogeochemists. We need all sorts of things. And so we're, we're trying to open the opportunity up to people who can't afford like traditional field research camps, mm-hmm. which can be five, $7,000 for a week. We're saying, look, you know, come out to the desert with us. You don't have to pay for anything because we have funding from donors and from small grants. And, uh, you know, these are the students who are going to be our scientists. Like they're the scientists of today and they're not being seen. And they are for sure the scientists of tomorrow who will help solve things like climate change. So, you know, that's who we need to be seeing more of on shows. And so that's what I've been pushing when I do work on for Science Channel or for Discovery Channel or for anybody I will, I will say, like, especially if we're in a, um, you know, a different country, I'll say, look, we need to hear from the local scientists. This isn't, you know, white American scientist goes and saves the day. That's not what we need to be seeing on our TVs. We need to see, hey, you've got your host who is curious and goes and talks to um, the people on the ground who know it really, really well and say, tell us what's going on here. Tell us what you're doing for your work. And then you can see that there are amazing geologists in Indonesia and Ecuador and Mongolia. And, you know, you get to see that, it, you know, there's science going on all around the world. And scientists can look like absolutely anybody. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, so um, tell them where they can find out more about Blueprint Earth and also tell them where they should find you on everything. But <laughs> first start with Blueprint Earth because that that yeah. is... And if anyone wants to, um, if anyone knows a a young scientist um, or someone who's an experienced scientist who might want to come out and help supervise, um, it's blueprintearth.org. And we are currently accepting applications for our five upcoming research expeditions. They're each about a week long. And there's uh, December, we have one, January two and February, or no, uh, March and April, we have one. So yeah, we got a bunch coming up. And so it's blueprintearth.org. Blueprint Earth is also on Instagram. You just look for Blueprint Earth. And uh, also we're on Twitter, but we don't really tweet much or Instagram much unless we're actually out in the field. And we're on Facebook too, of course. Um, And all those are good places to keep up with us. And um, for my stuff, um, I will say that I don't have it, you know, like anything set up yet, but I, I'm working on a book. So that will be all over my media when it actually is going to be released. Um, but uh, I've got a fabulous literary agent. So hopefully, hopefully it'll get picked up within the next couple of months and then I'll be saying, yay, go here and read my book. But for now, um, volcanojust.com is my website. It's just pretty static. If you want to actually um, hear my day-to-day rantings about whether it's science, you know, positive or negative, uh, or if it's about Trump, because I do mix politics in with it, it's Twitter. Um, I'm there at uh, Just Phoenix 2018 really bummed. I used to be at Volcano Jess, but that's not the one that was verified when I was running for Congress. So it's just sort of sitting there and dead, but Jess Phoenix 2018 is my, is my Twitter. Instagram is (laughs) volcano.jess. So, and then uh, Facebook, it's, um, I think it's Jess PHX. I think that's my thing. Yeah. Cause it's Phoenix, like the airport code. I don't know. It was, yeah. When I get lazy and want to abbreviate my own last name, uh, there we go. But <laughs> but no, I'm also just easy. You just type in Just Phoenix and like you get a bunch of things on me now. I'm I'm very Googleable <laughs> these yes, days. You are. Yes, you are. Oh my yes. God. And I just I will just say aloud that I hope that you run for office again. And I I'm guessing that everybody that listens to this will feel the same way. So everybody, stay on top of staying on top of Jess and follow her and I love you on Twitter and I love Twitter because they usually um, 
because I'm, I'm not on it that often, but when I come on it, you're at the top of my feed saying, you missed this when you were away, just said something. <laughs> oh God. I, I apologize in advance because sometimes I, love I, it. I, I, oh, I sometimes I get in a mood and I like, I was in a mood last night about the Yellowstone thing. So, um, you know, basically <laughs> screaming that Yellowstone is not going to kill us all. And the, the article was a blatant lie that came out and was getting all this traction. And we got a whole bunch of other volcanologists on Twitter all riled up and, you know, debunking. So sometimes it's stuff like that. Sometimes it's like, oh my God, I had to just break down and make muffins. Here's my muffin recipe. So, you know, it's, it's really all over the place. Yeah, it is. It's a way of life. It's the Jess Phoenix way of life. I love it. This has been absolutely great. And I appreciate so much what you did during my campaign and the fact that you were still in touch and still wonderful and spreading the love because that is what we need more than ever. If we can, if we can just show each other more empathy, I think it'll rub off in a good way. Like that's something we want to go viral. Okay, that was my favorite quote of 2018. Thank you so much, Jess Phoenix, for that incredibly inspiring talk. I'm hoping that everybody who hears this on November 1st will join me in a campaign, a superhero of love campaign called Thanks Love Giving, which is about inserting love into Thanksgiving, into the holidays, into the midterm elections, into these troubling times of dissension and righteousness. Please share your tips on all social media about how you love it forward, how you are a superhero of love out there, bringing love into your community, into your family, to that holiday table. Share it with hashtag thanks love giving, love it forward, superhero of love, and any other hashtag you can come up with. <laughs> Tag me if you will, superhero of love. I want to see tons of tips out there because your tip might help me. Join me in the Love It Forward campaign and thanks for listening. Have a great day, superhero.